Well, as you are uh, taking your seat, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to study 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The title of our lesson tonight is The Product of Biblical Ministry. The Product of Biblical Ministry. When Kim and I were first married, uh, we did what a lot of young married couples do, is we got a dog. And we loved the dog, and the dog was our kid before we had kids, and her name was Grace. And Grace was a cute little lap dog. She was an 85-pound lab, and she would curl up on my lap sometimes, and at bedtime she would hop in bed, and she would lay on my neck, and she was so cute. And Kim, I think, I don't know why, had the idea I should make Grace her own bed and make her own house. So I was tasked with making a doghouse, which would stay outside where she wanted the dog to be at the time. And so, me, being the son of a carpenter, set to task producing a doghouse. If you ever wonder, carpentry is not a skill that's hereditary. <laughs> it does not pass on like height and eye color and things along those lines, but I, I sure did try. I went to the store and I bought stuff and I came home and I went back to the store because I forgot things and I bought more things and I went back and I tried and I, I measured once and cut twice. You heard that right. And in the end, I created what I thought to be the Taj Mahal of doghouses. I had to make it big enough for me and Grace to go in there in case she wanted me to visit or something. Well, my doghouse was not appreciated by anyone, especially my dog. It wasn't straight. It was a little crooked. The shingles didn't quite hang right. And Grace was not interested with going inside. I tried. I worked. I toiled. I thought. But I produced something that was not fruitful. It was not helpful. Well, Jonathan in 1 Thessalonians has been teaching about biblical ministry. And Paul and his associates had been doing biblical ministry the correct way. And we get to see the product of that today. His outline, he was looking at a portrait of biblical ministry. A portrait of biblical ministry. And through that, we can see how we should do things for the glory of the Lord. To set this in the context of the book, the first section of the book of Thessalonians is about Paul being thankful for the church. Paul being thankful to, uh, for the church. You see his gratitude for God's work in others, but then you see the impact that a healthy church can be. But how did this church get to be a healthy church? The theme of this book would either be the model church or the birth and growth of the church. How did it get that way? Well, it was Paul and others doing ministry the way God wanted, and that produced the results. With Jonathan's outline, he first of all looked at this portrait of a biblical ministry that you can see the primary commitment of biblical ministry to proclaim the gospel of God. And then secondly, it would be the parental characteristics of biblical ministry. Let's look at chapter 2, verse 1. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amidst much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. 
For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have asserted our authority. And now we pause for a moment and we think of your typical church and your typical ministry and how it's done exactly the opposite of how Paul proposed. Verse 7, but we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives. Because you have become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. So the first section of the book of First Thessalonians is Paul's thankfulness. Secondly... He talks about the initial visit to Thessalonica. And in this, we get a, a portrait of biblical ministry. And then today, we transition to the product of that biblical ministry. Paul loving them, caring for them like a mother, admonishing them, teaching them as a father, produces fruitfulness in their lives and in their church. I just have two simple outline points tonight. The first one would be, the word was accepted. The word was accepted. You see that verse 9, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship. Because Paul's labor and hardship, how they worked hard, how they could witness their behavior so that they would walk in a manner worthy of God, the word of God was accepted. And we see that in verse 13. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that you, when you receive the word of God, which you heard in us, you accepted it. The emphasis is on the thank you. That is the, the verb here. When Paul calls this church to mind, he has nothing but love and thankfulness for them because they received the word of God. And it reminds us of what Paul wrote in Romans 10. Romans 10, 13. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Simple, right? But... How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him unless they have heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Paul in his ministry was very careful not to get in the way of the word of Christ. He simply brought the message to them and they received the word and they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You accepted it. This word means to indicate approval of or a conviction. John MacArthur says that it connotes an, an inward welcome of the message that transfers from the mind to the heart. We've already seen this word in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look at verse 6. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word 
in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So you received the word, you accepted it, you believed it, but not as the word of men. You didn't just trust Paul because you, you liked Paul, or Paul had a good sales pitch, or saw, uh, Paul was, was handsome, or he was clever, or something like that. You instead accepted this as the word of God. When it comes to the word of man, the word of man can fail us. We think of promises that have been made to us that someone never really intended to keep. Or maybe they intended to keep it, and they just didn't have the power to do it. We also have made promises ourselves, have we not? And we have not been able to make good on those. Man can lie. Man can be deceitful. But God is good. And God is faithful. And God is powerful. And God's word must be accepted. It must be trusted. You accepted the word of God, not as the word of men, but for what it really is. The word of God. The word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. That word is the word that you received and that you accepted. Now, the word, first of all, is the word of Christ, the gospel. Paul was very clear to them that they were pagans, that they were unbelievers, and that they needed a Savior, and that Savior was Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life and died on the cross, and he rose again, and that they must repent, turn from their idols to the one true God and believe in Jesus. And so they accepted that word, that message. But then, after becoming Christians, they began to continually accept the word of God that was being taught to them. And the result of that is that the word was effective. Outline point number one, the word was accepted. Outline point number two, the word was effective. Unlike my doghouse, the word of God was effective. And there are just a few questions I have as we walk through the rest of these verses. The first would be, what does it mean to perform? What does it mean to perform? Because it says, for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it. Not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. That word perform means to put one's capabilities into operation, to be effective, to be at work. It, first of all, produced in them salvation. And we go back to Romans 10, verse 17, right? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the word was received, the message was taken in, and they placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are no longer servants of the enemy. They are now children of God. They no longer live in the domain of darkness. They have been transferred into the kingdom of light. But it also performs sanctification. Performs sanctification. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 12, So then, my beloved... 
just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at, here's our word, at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, Paul was not advocating a works-based salvation. He wasn't saying, okay, well, you, you have the truth, but now you need to work on that truth in order to be right with God. No, they were already right with God. They were already declared righteous. But now the outpouring of that is what we call sanctification, where they set aside sin, where they set their mind on things above, where they put on righteousness. So the word saved, but the word also sanctified, and that's what's going on at this church. Now, why is it going on at this church? The portrait of biblical ministry produces a clear picture of the word, and the word then takes residence and works in the heart of the people that are there. The second question I have is, what did the word produce at Thessalonica? What did it produce at Thessalonica? Well, verse 14 says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So there are two things that are being produced here. The first one would be a persecuted church. A persecuted church. And you're like, well, is that really, is that really a good thing? Is that something that we, we want to sign up for? Absolutely. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? Will be persecuted. If you're a church that's not being persecuted then you're a church that's trying to blend in with the rest of the world. So many churches, they want to to make things look like a movie theater or a coffee shop, or they want to make it accommodating as much for the world so they can just come on in, and they're not offended by the truth. But when a church stands for the word and preaches the word and has a high view of the word and a high view of God, then persecution will come. And the word become is a passive verb. Is a passive word. For you, brethren, you know, they receive the word, they receive the message, they receive the truth, and it produced in them that they are a persecuted church. It's happening to them. They became imitators of the churches of God that are in Christ Jesus in Judea. Those churches in Judea were being persecuted because of their faith in Christ. The church at Thessalonica was being persecuted just like them because of their stance to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this was a church that we would call the model church. It's growing. It's being purified. It wasn't easy to associate with them because you might be put out of business or you might be put out of a family. But the church at Thessalonica, the Christians said, sign me up. I love Jesus. I love his word no matter what the cost is. And so this church was put under the microscope of Satan's attack. And it purified them 
and it grew them into, number two, a faithful church. So when we ask the question, what did the word produce at Thessalonica? It first of all produced a persecuted church because they were just like their brethren in Judea. But that persecuted church becomes a faithful church. Becomes a faithful church. In the the book of Revelation, you're familiar with the seven churches, right? And each one of them, there is this challenge, this he who overcomes. The church who overcomes, right? The church will overcome if they are faithful and true to God's word. Don't blend in with this culture. Endure. says, for you also endured. Now the word endured, the verb here is active. So you passively became, this happened to you. You love God's word, you love his truth, so you became an imitator of the churches in Judea, which means you are going to be picked on. You are going to be persecuted. But that picking on you, that persecuting of you, it turned you into actively a church that endures. You endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. The people that you would have called your own, they're the ones that rose up and betrayed you. They're the people that hate you. They're the people that can't stand you. It says, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. So Paul is reminding them, don't forget that Jesus was a Jew, that the Jews historically ran off and killed the prophets that God so graciously gave them. And they took Jesus and they crucified Jesus. And the church of Jesus is ravaged and persecuted in Judea. They are becoming imitators of them, but they are enduring these sufferings. Enduring these sufferings. If you ever wonder, could I take it? Could I take the persecution? If you have the word of God, and you love the word of God, and you prioritize the word of God, absolutely. Absolutely. Left to our own strength, we would wilt under the pressure. But we have the word of God, and the word of God, combined with biblical ministry, produces in us a faithfulness that is a glory to God and a testimony to him. Let's go back to Acts chapter 17. Flip there with me. And Acts 17 records this initial visit. So in the book of Thessalonica, Paul in chapter 2 begins talking about the initial visit that they had with them. And they um, loved them as Jesus loved them. And they taught them as Jesus would desire them to do this. And it produced fruit in the church. In Acts 17.1, we see the actual record of this. When they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So the book of Acts, we understand that Paul's priority when he would come to a new town is he would go to the synagogue. All right, So the the Jews didn't go to churches, they went to synagogues. And he would go there and he would reason with them and he would preach Christ to them. So you see in verse 3, he was explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And wouldn't you have liked to be there? 
just to listen to Paul's arguments and his passion. So well versed in the Old Testament, being a Hebrew of Hebrew and a Pharisee of Pharisee. And he's just, he's just bringing it. He's just bringing the truth. So what's the result? In verse 4, some of them were persuaded and they joined Paul and Silas. So some of them became believers, right? Along with a number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. This is awesome. Praise the Lord, right? They're practicing biblical ministry and people are coming to know the Lord. Oh, but the Jews becoming jealous and taking along uh, with them some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob. So you have this, this mixture, right? He went to the synagogues. He reasoned with them. He preached the truth. Uh, there's a number of them that, that become believers in Jesus Christ, but there's others that, that hate him for it. And the default is, all right, let, come on, let's go. Let's get a mob together. Let's run him out of town. And you see that over and over again with Paul. And did he fear that? No, he didn't fear that. But here we have the Jews and a mixture of other people. They're jealous. And they take some wicked men from the marketplace and they formed a mob. I don't know if there's an advertisement there. I don't know if there's a stand that just said wicked men above it. But they went out and they find some wicked people that were going to do wicked things because they needed them for that. And they formed a mob and they set the city in an uproar. Set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authority, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. What an exaggeration, right? They're upsetting the whole world. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus. They're, just, they're throwing out anything they have. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Oh, is the, is the crowd not easily fooled? Stirred up into a tizzy. And when they received the pledge from Jason and others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. So here we have a different set of Jewish people says, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so we have, you know, like Sunday school classes named after them, the Bereans, right? Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Verse 13, but when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea, also, they came there as well and agitating and stirring up the crowds. You can't shake these guys. It wasn't enough that we left Thessalonica. They hate Jesus so much. They hate Paul so much that they got to follow him to the next place. And they got to try to run him out there. This is the wicked people. Now, Paul had the benefit, okay? Paul had the benefit of moving on to a new place. The church at Thessalonica didn't. And the Jews that hated Paul so much that they traveled to continue to harass him, where did they return? They came back to Thessalonica. And the church is still there. And they're stuck with them. They got to live with them. And so now you understand the persecution and you understand the enduring that this church is willing to do. But it is worth it to this church. 
Because this church loves Jesus and loves God's word, and they're not going to shy away because of this persecution. And it's all a result of the word, the effectiveness of the word of God. My next question is, does biblical ministry always produce biblical fruit? We looked at a portrait of biblical ministry with Jonathan's lessons, but if you do it that way, is it always going to be successful? Sadly not. Sadly not. You can do everything right, and you can say everything right, and it could fall on a hard heart. You you think of the, the parable of the soils, right? The sower went out to sow, and it landed on different soils, One of the soils became a believer and produced fruit, but the others were either choked away by the the worries of the world or Satan snatched it away. You see here in verse 15 that the Jews are not pleasing to God. Not all of the Jews. These Jews in particular at Thessalonica and the ones that continued to hound Paul in his ministry. They're not pleasing to God. But they're hostile to all men. Now why is that? Well, Titus 3, they were all hateful, hating one another. Apart from Christ, that's what we do. That's, what, that's how wicked we are. We just hate other people and are jealous of other people. They are not pleasing to God, but they are hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. How terrible is that? Look, they heard the truth and they rejected it. We don't want any part of it. But we, we definitely don't want these people to be saved. So we're going to do whatever we can to, to stop you. To stop you. The same gospel message, the same messenger went to these people. And there was a different result. Verse 3, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them to the utmost that's the result the ministry was good the word was good but the result was different why or d or my fourth question what is the difference In these two responses. What's the difference? We're talking about the product of biblical ministry here. Biblical ministry was done. What is the difference? Well, let's go back to verse 13. For this reason, we also what? Constantly thank God. But God, there'd be no change. There'd be no difference. So that's why he starts with thankfulness to God. Goes on to write that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in who? You who believe. And there's the difference. The dark, hard heart that continues to hold on to its sin and its pride rejects the word of God and becomes openly 
hostile to the things of the Lord. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. There must be faith. And the faith, working in accordance with the word, produces fruit. Produces fruit. We understand in John 6, 44 that Jesus said, No one can come to me unless what? The Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on that last day. Jesus came into the world, John 3, and he lived the perfect life and he died on the cross. But you read on in John 3, men hated the light because they loved the darkness and they rejected Jesus and they rejected the message. Only God working in the heart to call and draw the individual to himself will produce the result that you find at the church at Thessalonica. How does belief happen? How does belief happen? The word comes, the Lord through his spirit uses the word to call and draw to himself. And the result is we thank God. And we do not credit ourselves and we do not credit the messenger. We do not credit the messenger. So as Paul is talking about his ministry to those at Thessalonica, he's not tooting his own horn there, right? What he's saying is, be like us. Do what we did, and God can use that greatly for his glory. But we are just humble servants. In the book of 1 Corinthians, he he calls himself a farmer or, or a builder or a steward or even the scum of the world. It's not about Paul. It's about God saving. It's about God working in their heart to call and draw them to themselves. As we conclude our lesson tonight, I I do want us to consider two things. First of all, we all should be actively living out the portrait of biblical ministry. Living out the portrait of biblical ministry. This wasn't just written for Paul's edification. This wasn't just written for Paul's benefit. We don't just look at what's going on and say, oh, well, you're an apostle. You're supposed to do that. Well, we have the Holy Spirit. And we have a giftedness. And we are to use that giftedness and imploring it and serving one another, furthering his kingdom and bringing others to Christ. Chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. When you... Counsel, advise, speak. Are you using God's truth? Are you using your own wisdom? Verse 4, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who examines the heart. Is my motivation in the right place? Because It isn't just for the pastors to share the gospel. It isn't just for the missionaries to share the gospel. It isn't just for the apostles to share the gospel. We all should be sharing the gospel. But are we doing it to make ourselves look better or to make ourselves feel better? Are we doing it with the right motivation? It says, for we never came with flattering speech. I think a lot of people don't share. They feel that they are not going to know the words to say. 
It's not going to be as smooth as they want it to be. And Paul says, who cares? It's not supposed to be smooth and flattering. It's supposed to be confrontational. It's supposed to be a lifeline that you're throwing to that person. Keep it simple. Proclaim the truth. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ we might have assorted our authority. But we prove to be what? Gentle among you. Are you gentle among the people that you're confronting, you're exhorting, you're helping, you're sharing? Do you have a fond affection for them? Verse 8. Do you labor, verse 9, in hardship for these people? Paul sold out for those that he wanted to know Christ and wanted to serve Christ. What does your effort level look like? As a church, do these people around you matter to you? Do you love them? Do you care for them? Do you have a ministry that you're involved in? Do you put aside self and and proclaim Christ? We should be acting just like Paul so that the unbeliever will hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. But so that the Christian will be built up and his kingdom will be advanced secondly I want you to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you let the word of Christ dwell richly in you we see from our passage today that the word of Christ is effective It was accepted as the word of God, and therefore it was effective. It is the same word that you, Christian, have received. It's the same word that can still sanctify you. You can endure. You can be persecuted. You can live for Christ because of the word. And while you're doing this, and while you're serving Proclaiming his truth and letting the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Remember that salvation is in his hands. You probably have that family member. That co-worker. That neighbor. And you want them to be saved. And you've shared with them, but it's just not happening. Pray that the Lord would use his word to work in their heart Rely on God for salvation. Rely on God to do the work. Titus 3, 3 through 5. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. And you're like, well, thanks, Paul. I appreciate that picture of myself. Why is he going into such detail? He wants you to understand the people that you're sharing the gospel to. That's still them. That's what you were, but that's still them. So that coworker that's an unbeliever, that family member who has rejected Christ, this is still them. And how are they ever going to change? But when the kindness of our God and Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds that we've done in righteousness. Doesn't that 
empower you a little bit more? You love the word. You love the gospel. So you're going to bring it to other people. And in bringing it to under people, other people, you're not relying on your own craftiness. You're not relying on your own intelligence. You're simply stating the facts of the gospel. And you're praying for the Lord to work in their heart and in their life. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 4. For, what, for when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Servants through whom you have believed. Even as the Lord gave an opportunity to each one. I planted. Are you planting? Are you planting the seeds of God's truth in the hearts and the lives of others? Apollos watered. Paul is speaking of this this teamwork they have going on. I'm planting. Apollos came by and he watered. Are you watering? But if you're doing either or both of those, it says, but God was causing the growth. Why was the church at Thessalonica a healthy church? Why were they what we would call the model church? It's because God did his work through his word. So then neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. So when I share and when I serve, I rely on the Lord. I love Isaiah 55, 8 through 11. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, And furnishing seed to the sower and the bread, the eater. So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will what? Not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. And without succeeding in the matter for which I was sent. We think if I share the gospel, if I share God's truth, and they don't become a believer... If they don't listen and obey, I've failed. And God says, no. My word went, and it's going to do exactly what I planned it. And you're like, well, I wish I knew what that plan is. That's why he did the whole, my ways are higher than your ways. You don't always get to see those things. I want you to also, as we're allowing the word of Christ to dwell richly in us, it helps us in our gospel outreach, but it also reminds us that vengeance is in his hands. Vengeance is in his hands. I mean, look at these, look at these people. Look at these people. Verse 14, you, brethren, became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. Okay? So the church is being persecuted. Alright? Well, God, we maybe smite them, a little smiting over here, sprinkle a little wrath on these people even as they did from the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God. They are hostile to men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved with the the result that they always fill up to the measure of their sins. But catch this, but wrath has come 
upon them to the utmost. Wouldn't you like to know what that is? We don't need to know what it is. Paul is speaking of these Jews that have hindered his ministry. He's speaking of the same types of Jews that are harassing the church at Thessalonica. And he says, look, they're going to get theirs. You don't have to worry about punishing them. You don't have to worry about conquering them because God will conquer them. God will punish them. God will take care of them in his timing. Romans 12, 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And we ultimately go to to Christ on the cross, right? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And not long after that, at Pentecost, thousands of them received the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. The same ones that were shouting, crucify him. And Christ says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. For thousands of them, that actually happened where they are now in heaven with God. There are a lot of wicked people in this world. There are a lot of wrong people in this world. There's a lot of destructive people in this world. We can't worry about them. We trust God knowing that God will take care of things. In Paul's own life, he said, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. How would you finish that sentence? Go take him out. Don't buy his stuff. Whatever it might be. He says, he did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. But you know what? Paul would have been just as excited as if God had saved Alexander the coppersmith. Because he pleads for his enemies and he prayed for their salvation. And so that's what we do. Understanding the wrath of God will come upon his enemies. We pray for the salvation of all men, knowing that God is gracious and patient. Not wishing for any of them to perish, but for all to come to Christ Jesus. Well, I pray that this passage has been encouraging to you. And there are a number of things that you can take from Paul's initial visit in Thessalonica that you can apply to your own walk in life. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God. We see your goodness in the pages today of the church at Thessalonica, how you poured into them and how they responded to your word and how you produced in them acceptance and how you produced in them an effective ministry enduring persecution. And we know, Father God, that if we trust your word, that you can work the same things in us. That we can carry on biblical ministry for your kingdom and for your glory And that we can trust your word that gives us peace and assurance and comfort and direction. We thank you for this wonderful passage, for this truth, for your love and for your goodness. And may we take steps to change things in our life to match your truth and what you want. We love you, Father. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.